and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Colgate Director of Sustainability, John Pamilio. For the past 10 years, John has led Colgate's sustainability program and has helped spearhead a campus-wide commitment to achieving carbon neutrality. In his time on campus, Colgate has reduced its carbon footprint by 46%, and in 2019, it became the first college or university in New York State to achieve carbon neutrality. Efforts towards carbon neutrality include reduction in energy, water, and paper consumption, while increasing renewable energy, recycling, and overall awareness of sustainability on campus. John is a lead green associate through the United States Building Council and a certified energy manager through the Association of Energy Engineers. John Pamilio, welcome to 13. Thanks so much for having me. This is ex- really excited. Well, I woke excited up this morning with here. butterflies in my stomach. And <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Dan. Sure. Um, I'll just jump right into question one. In your words, what does sustainability mean on a college campus? Well, I think, you know, it's I have a dotted line to two different parts of the university. One is to assist the faculty in the curriculum. So it's definitely about the pedagogical or the concept of sustainability. And the other dotted line goes to our operations. So it's looking at the things we're doing today and figuring out how could we do things operationally that reduce our ecological and carbon footprints. So on a college campus, I think that's kind of how it plays out. So, you know, people still drive cars to work. We use electricity. We still heat our buildings. Students still study abroad. How can it be possible that Colgate is carbon neutral given all of that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And carbon neutrality is a milestone. It's not the end. It was never the final goal. And then we, you know, the university focuses on something else. This is a journey. And that journey is going to take us a while. So carbon neutrality as a milestone simply means we picked, we designated a time in our program when we reduced as much as we could up until that time, our carbon footprint. And whatever was remaining, we invest in carbon offsets in projects someplace else that would mitigate the carbon that we have not been able to offset with our campus operations to this point. So since we have reached that milestone, what's next for you and your office? I mean, it's one of those things that you, so you reach carbon neutrality, like you said, it's just the beginning, but to the outside world, it's kind of like, what next? Yeah, it's a pivotal year because I think we need to keep our finger and our focus on you know, the ongoing work. So we need to communicate and really be kind of salient that the work is ongoing. So what's next for us is what it was last year, actually, and the year before. And that's to really try to integrate um, the practice of sustainability uh, throughout campus. So, So that it's not the sustainability office doing this work or advocating it alone but we're more of the help desk for other departments and programs that are trying to say, how can we assist the university in this uh, critically important uh, endeavor? So as you mentioned, one of the ways Colgate reached this milestone of carbon neutrality was the purchase of offsets. So explain how a carbon offset works to someone who's never heard about it before or maybe hasn't you know, done any research about what carbon offsets are. Yeah, it's actually not 
um, very complicated to understand. So it's uh, carbon offsets are quite rational, actually, um, meaning that in some places it's extremely hard to reduce a ton of carbon. It gets expensive and it gets logistically cumbersome. And then in other areas, you can offset a ton of carbon um, for relatively low cost in a place where it's needed or wanted or both. Um, so what we do here on campus is we evaluate both on campus as well as off campus um, projects that reduce carbon. And since climate change is a global problem and carbon emissions are global in nature, um, from, again, a rational perspective, it makes sense to look at both on campus and off campus. So as part of our program, we made a determination a while back that whatever our carbon balance was, we would invest potentially in a project somewhere else. So that's what a carbon offset really is. Um, you, uh, for example, we would invest in a renewable energy project. And that would be a project that wouldn't have happened unless we invested in it along with other people. Um, so we combine um, that purchase to make the project feasible. So new projects are going up and they're replacing old uh, carbon emitting projects. And it has to be that way because we do not invest in any projects that aren't rigorously certified. So they have to meet a whole bunch of criteria in order to do the things that we want them to do, meaning that they're additional, they wouldn't have happened without our investment, and that they're actually removing carbon that we're investing in, and then that ton of carbon is retired and could never be invested in by anybody else at any other time. So, you know, in a in a nutshell, that's kind of what a carbon offset is. It's a project that happens someplace else that removes carbon on our behalf in an instance where we either could not or would not reduce our own uh, through our own internal operations. Can you give an example or two of the type of carbon offsets that Colgate did invest in and how they work? Yeah, for, for example, we were, you know, we were really interested in um, something in New York State. Uh, and remarkably, there weren't a lot of carbon offset projects in New York State. And it, it's got a lot to do with our extremely aggressive renewable portfolio standard. And also our, you know, our state is pretty progressive on climate stuff. So we weren't able to, a lot of projects aren't able to pass the additionality test, meaning that um, you weren't, um, they, they weren't able to show that this project would not have happened otherwise because the state's requiring it in some cases. But we did find a methane capture and energy production uh, project in New York State over in the Finger Lakes region where um, the landfill uh, was capped and the methane that would otherwise be emitted into the atmosphere, and methane's a really powerful greenhouse gas. Instead, that methane is captured. Methane is more or less natural gas, and that methane is combusted to produce energy. So not only are we avoiding the release of methane into the environment, but it's then captured to produce a form of energy, which is overall good for climate. That was one type of project. It was an energy-related project. We also invested in um, reforestation or biosequestration projects. 
So um, we have a project in Patagonia, Chile, mm -hmm. where we invest um, in the reforestation of a degraded uh, ecosystem. And then a third type that we invested in was avoided deforestation. So um, in one of our projects, for example, is in Indonesia, where um, you know there's been a lot of uh, an extreme uh, rate of deforestation of their native uh, forests, tropical forests, um, for um, um, palm oil uh, production, which is really causing a huge loss in biodiversity and negative impacts to um, the local. Um, communities that live there. So really what we did is by investing in that project, we guarantee a source of income and avoided um, deforestation that would have happened otherwise in that project. So those are just a few, it's like a sample of the different types of projects that we could invest in. Hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of efforts that um, have been started or um, tried or are now in progress on campus uh, in order to help r reduce the carbon footprint of Colgate. Um, tell me a little bit about the Green Revolving Loan Fund and how does that help improve sustainability on campus? Yeah, well, at the same time that we are, you know, trying to integrate sustainability throughout our campus operations and we achieved carbon neutrality um, through the help of carbon offsets, we needed to make sure that we had something, some structure, a financial structure in place that would ensure that we continue to invest in on-campus projects in the most efficient way possible. That's the Green Revolving Loan Fund. So basically what the university did is they set aside uh, a pot of money, $1.25 million wow. in this case, mm -hmm. and um, that was earmarked specifically for projects that reduce our operating cost over time uh, as well as our carbon footprint. It has to meet both criteria um, or else it's not eligible for the Green Revolving Fund. So to date, we've invested in four different projects on campus that have a return on investment and that have reduced our campus carbon footprint. Oh, very neat. Um, so over the past 10 years, um, you know, as you think back at your time here, um, is there a specific sustainability initiative or effort that has happened that you're most proud of? If you had to pick one, I know there's a lot. Yeah, well, I walked into sustainability uh, through the door of uh, environmental and forest biology. My passion has always been conservation biology. Um, and, you know, just recognizing where we are in the history of the planet, you know, there's um, extinction rates are a thousand times above the normal background rate, and some people are framing this as the period of the sixth extinction. I think applying my time to, you know, as a professional to address that in some way is a good use of my single professional career. So when we came into sustainability, that could be approached in many different ways, but I really like what we've done with, um, you know, forest conservation and landscape uh, sustainability. So we've been at the front edge of a institute, you know, of a higher ed um, institutional change on that. In other words, we went out and did a complete f uh, forest carbon inventory of our forests, 
And we set up a model that's now being replicated by other schools and universities across the country um, to measure the forest, uh, the forest carbon and to begin to manage their forest in a way that re increases carbon sequestration. So the co-benefits of that are we are maintaining our campus forests and we're improving that for increased biodiversity as well as other ecosystem services that the forest can have. Before we started doing this work, campus forests were largely ignored in campus sustainability programs and that's now changing and I think it's changing because of the work that we've been doing here. We're widely recognized uh, to helping to um, promote that or make it happen. I think Colgate's forests are mostly known to the people that are here for their beauty, like the miles of nature trails and everything else. Tell me a little bit more about like how much carbon do they sequester and how do you figure all this stuff out? Yeah, so you know we 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 have a, a fairly large forest uh, for a small. Uh, relatively small uh, campus regarding the built environment. Uh, for example, our built environment's about 500 acres. That's what most people associate with Colgate University. We see our buildings, we see our landscape, we see our quads. That's Colgate University. I think what less people, uh, what fewer people understand is that we actually have about uh, 1,500 acres of forested lands um, that surround our campus proper. And um, so those are like native uh, northeast forest types. You know, they're beech maple birch uh, forests, and they're also mixed hardwood uh, conifer forests. And that's the area that we're really into. So how do you go about and sample that? We take sample plots. So we established 174 permanent plots within our, you know, 1,000 plus acres. And we go out and we measure trees um, within a, a tenth of an acre diameter, okay. basically. We measure every tree within each one of those plots. Circumference? Circumference. Mm -hmm. So we call it uh, DBH, or diameter at breast height, and we identify the type of tree it is. Then we used U.S. Forest Service modeling uh, to be able to extrapolate the amount of carbon that's contained within that tree. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can come up with an estimate of stored carbon in our forests. Then what we did is we waited five years and we went out and remeasured every one of those trees within every one of our plots. And the increase in DBH, um, we can then model how much carbon was sequestered over the past five years. Divide that by five and we get our annual rate of carbon sequestration uh, for our plots which we then extrapolate to our entire forested area. And right now we're, um, you know, estimating that our forests are sequestering about 3,700 tons of carbon annually. Wow. Most of the university's newest buildings have received national recognition for their sustainable construction. These are awards from the United States Green Building Council. And you often see the plaques on new construction that say LEED certified. What does it mean to have green building standards? So the green building standards are basically a way to design, build, and operate a new, a new building or a renovated building um, in a way that reduces its ecological impacts and its cost of ownership over time. So that's not just 
so why we pursue the certification is because it's not just us, uh, you know, as the Office of Sustainability or as our project management team or facilities saying, hey, we built a green building. You know, this is this, these are the things that we did. Instead, we go to a third-party certifier, it's a, and it's an established program um, that's followed by anybody who wants to certify a green building across the globe, actually. They have to meet a certain set of criteria. So we follow that criteria. What that plaque means is that um, the United States Green Building Council um, certified our building through its LEED certification to basically say that this building was built using renewable construction materials. You recycled materials as part of the project. Mm -hmm. You were sensitive to the site that the project was built on. You've taken into account alternative transportation, and you're operating the building in a way that is reduced resource use, energy and water consumption, as well as um, mitigating uh, carbon emissions over time. So it has to meet all of those things in order to become a LEED certified building. Wow. What is a greenhouse gas inventory? And could someone perform one at their home? Absolutely. Uh, I perform it at my home. And in my own uh, personal life, I um, measure my own uh carbon emissions according to my uh, lifestyle and the way that my home, you know, operates, how I heat and cool my own home. So basically what a greenhouse gas inventory is, is you, yes, you can do it for your home. All we do is the scale is much bigger for a university. So we look at our energy consumption. We look at the waste that we produce. We look at our transportation, air travel, as well as commuter emissions. We look at the way that we um, manage our landscape. Those are all types of things that go into our greenhouse gas inventory. So it's basically data collection, and then we figure out how much of how much oil are we using, how much natural gas are we using, how much biomass are we using, um, how much fertilizer are we putting on our on our landscape, how much waste are we producing that goes to the landfill. And then we figure out how much greenhouse gas, how many uh, greenhouse gas emissions are associated uh, with that aspect of our operations. Mm. We, we came up with a baseline in 2009. That was the first time we did a comprehensive institutional greenhouse gas inventory. And we measure it every year, um, implementing projects along the way that reduce our baseline footprint. And at this point, as you mentioned in your intro, we've cut our on-campus emissions by almost half, uh, 46% over the past 10 years. So if someone asks you what they can do uh, in their own lives to become more green, you know, day to day, you know, you think on the larger scale here, but on a smaller scale, are there simple things that people can do to, to make a difference? Oh, can I, can I come back for another one of these episodes? Because that's a whole <laughs> Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do first, you know, you can look, the two big ones are probably the way that you heat and cool your home. Mm. Um, so one of the, you know, a, a great place to start would be that in New York state, for example, we offer free home energy audits or really reduced cost home energy audits. So that is a very natural place to start. You can have somebody who's um, certified, 
to come in in the New York State DEC has a full list of um, folks who perform energy audits that they, you know, that meet their litmus test. Um, so I did this for my own home. They come in, they do a full home energy audit. And then at the end of that, they present you with a report. And that report might list anywhere from a couple to over a dozen different projects that you could implement in your own home that would reduce your energy costs over time. Hmm. Could be anything from home insulation to changing out your hot water tank to um, you know exchanging some old appliances. And in many cases, there's state rebates or tax incentives uh, to help help you implement that program. Lighting upgrades are another one. Um, so that's, you know, on the energy side of things, that's, that's one. Um, and then there's transportation stuff, you know, figuring out ways to either carpool or uh, maybe with your next car purchase, you can get something that's more uh, fuel efficient uh, or a hybrid or electric vehicle. Those types of things are all ways that you can, you know, those are just a couple of ways that you could go green in your own lifestyle. Also purchasing things that you buy. Um, whether it's at the grocery store or things that you purchase that are more material in nature, um, asking the simple question, um, what is this, is this product benefit the environment or, um, uh, or does it reduce the social impacts in any way? You know, I think about, um, solar panels and how they seem to have become more adopted, you know, over the past five, 10 years. Um, you're starting to see large solar farms, particularly here in central New York. Um, why aren't solar panels on everything? Are, why are we not at that point yet? And why isn't solar bigger than um, than it is now? Or is it? Is it, is it one of those things that's just kind of on its way? Um, or is that not the future of um, green energy production? No, people are very excited about solar and wind. And I think it's it's actually rolling out quite rapidly, um, you know, in the state over time. There's many, you know, we, we initiated a program a few years back um, called uh, uh, Solarize, uh, Solarize Central New York. Uh, Solarize Madison County. We were the first county in the state to actually do this, mm. where we, um, you know, we came up with a program to make things easier, break down some of the barriers for homeowners to implement, to install solar at their own homes. There were, you know, it was it's confusing for a homeowner to try to figure out who's the best installer, what's the best cost, mm -hmm. does this make sense for me? Those types of things. So what we did is we just offered a helping hand one-stop shopping. And we um, put out a bid um, for a few installers to be able to do this at a reduced cost. So it reduced the soft cost of installation for homeowners. And we had, we ended up going through a couple versions of this. And then Syracuse, um, the city of Syracuse actually adopted our model. And then Central New York adopted our model. So wow. what was started here in Madison County, through the help of Colgate University, hmm. ended up scaling up throughout the state. Um, so there's been a lot of home installations. There's been increasing number of large-scale installations. But I think that you know some of the barriers that exist out there are the intermittency of solar. So solar doesn't, you know, solar energy isn't always produced at the time when we need it most. 
So the next frontier in solar is storage. Uh, is there a way that we can store solar energy so that we can then use it at a time when it's most needed? And I think, you know, that's that's where the um, the breakthroughs are happening now. And that is going to unleash, I think, um, more widespread um, solar installations in our state, which we have to do because we just passed, which New York State just passed the most aggressive climate legislation in the country. And in order to meet those really, really aggressive goals, we have to deploy solar and wind and other renewable technologies at a rate that's been unprecedented to this point. Hmm. So we're at question 13. Oh, cool. <laughs> Outside of being the go-to green guy on campus, you're somewhat of a local celebrity when it comes to bird watching. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite species of bird in the area, and how can one identify it? Um, that, that's a no-brainer. Uh, my favorite species is a bird called the cedar waxwing, and I hope that all of your listeners um, will pull out a field guide or just Google cedar waxwing and take a look at this bird. It's incredible. I'm going to Google it right now because <laughs> I've never heard of a cedar waxwing. Yeah, before, when I was first getting into birding, when I was just a little person, um, I couldn't believe that that bird actually existed because it, it looked ceramic or porcelain. It didn't look like a real bird with real feathers. And then I was astonished to see that they actually look like that in real life. Oh, yeah. Um, they're really cool. But what wins me over is not their colors or their appearance because we have, you know, we have very colorful birds in New York State and beyond. What really won me over is their disposition um, they are extremely social, um, so they hang out in groups, and they just seem to be, com you know, community oriented, and they're very soft spoken. So they don't have loud, obnoxious calls like blue jays might, but they actually are so subtle that the average person has no idea that these birds exist. But they are all over our campus oh, wow. and all over central New York, and extremely few people have seen them but they're everywhere and they're all around us we're just not paying attention so I like their disposition it's kind of how I like to model uh, myself in some ways it's subtle quiet and just <laughs> present you know <laughs> yeah, just looking at a picture I mean they're really beautiful they it's almost like a uh, orange brown and it gradiates to there's like a gradient to to gray yeah with the yellow tail yeah and it's see that little pretty. red so see those little red spots yeah at the tip? Mm -hmm. yeah that's a waxy substance really not found on any other bird and that's what gives them their name wax wing on their wings why yeah. why is that waxy substance there I don't know if there's any functional purpose for it or if it's really just um, you know it, something that has been preferred uh, by the species over time for sexual selectivity oh. John, thank you very much for answering 13 questions. This was a lot of fun. All right. And uh, we'll be on the lookout for cedar waxwings. Please do. All right. Thanks a lot, John. All right. And that was 13. Special thanks to John for answering our questions today. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu with your thoughts or ideas. That's the number 13. And any burning questions you may have. I'm sure we can find a professor or a staff member who can help to answer them. Have a wonderful week and keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. 
Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.